0: Some of you may, may already know this, but I am a person who has always loved languages, lots of different languages. And I, I'm definitely no scholar when it comes to it, and I bet you I couldn't give you more than a handful of, of words or phrases in any of the languages that I've attempted to learn, but I've still always been fascinated by how people use language in their daily lives. Like, for instance, when I meet someone who's, who's bilingual or, or multilingual like Bridget, one of the things I asked her was, what language do you think in? I mean, just just think about it for a minute. If you're bilingual or multilingual, what language do you think in? Because words are such a big part of who we are as people. (laughs) Okay, question answered. All right. And with them, we can communicate almost anything, right? We can can speak forcefully and and energetically to make sure we get our point across and make sure we're heard. Or we can whisper really quietly to keep others from guessing what we're talking about. With language, we can declare our love for one another. With language, we can ask for food or write laws or create road signs to help us find our way around. In fact, if you think about it, our world is unthinkable without intelligible language because language unites us. But at the very same time, language can also separate us. Language can be destructive. Because for every word of love, there can be a word of hate. Every time we speak peace, someone else can declare war. For every truth, there's also a lie. In fact, one author has said, of all the achievements of human genius, nothing is more wonderful than language. And yet it is also true that nothing is more destructive, for it unites us and also separates us. Just kind of like this uh, exchange student from another country that I was reading about. He's he's trying to learn English, and he decides one day to try and impress a group of his friends with his newfound skills. So he turned to one of his English-speaking friends, and he said to him, you know, my problem with your English language is the meaning of the words are so vaguely. And the man replied, what did you say? So he repeated, he said, the meaning of your words are too vaguely. His friend said, no, 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 it's not, it's not vague UE, it's vague. So the student said, oh, I can't believe it. Every time I try to use one of my new English words, my tongue UE gets all twisted up. And his friend said, no, 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 it's not, it's not tongue UE, it's tongue. So, so listen, let me give you a grammatical rule that's going to help you out while you're learning English. Whenever you see an English word that ends with UE, the UE is silent. So it's not vague UE, it's vague. It's not tongue we, it's tongue. To which the man replied, okay, okay, fine, I don't want to argue about it anymore. And I tell you that because the story of Pentecost, which we're commemorating today, is a story that transcends the barriers of language. A barrier that actually began in the very first book of the Bible at the Tower of Babel, and that's going to be our first reading today from the book of Genesis. Chapter 11, Moses writes, the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven And let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do? And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined. Let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Pretty dramatic story, right? In his uh, book Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin said, Man is by nature a perpetual factory of idols, and that factory is never idle. And nowhere is that more clearly seen than in the text about the the Tower of Babel, the text that falls right after the story of Noah. And you would think that the people would have learned their lesson, right? I mean, just two chapters before, we have the story of the judgment and the flood. And people were living in unrestrained sin, so God judges them, and he sends the deluge, saving only eight people. And you'd think that humanity would learn their lesson, but do they? No. I mean, think about it. Noah and his family leave the ark. Their descendants begin to subdue the earth again. And before you know it, sin is on its merry way, leading directly to the idolatry of the Tower of Babel. One commentator noted on this, he said, It's interesting that God sent the flood to wash the whole earth, but there is one thing that water cannot wash, and that's our hearts. And he continued, because by nature we are sinful. And the fact that people went on from building the Tower of Babel so soon after the flood is proof of it. And you know, it's not that God doesn't want people to be industrious. It's not that God doesn't want people to be ingenious. He's the author of all of those things. But it's the intent of the heart that's using them that matters. And that's still true today, isn't it? I mean, look at what people are able to do today. Think of what we can build. We build roads and We build hospitals and we build schools and amazing computers. We can find cures for all kinds of diseases. We can put people into outer space. We can do all of these ingenious things, but whose glory is it for? Is it for God's glory or is it for ours? And as we read through our scripture lesson today, we notice the three big reasons why these people wanted to build this gigantic city and this huge tower. First, they said it was so they wouldn't be scattered over the face of the earth. And that idea was in direct disobedience to the Lord's command. Because remember, God told Noah and his descendants after they left the ark to be fruitful, to increase in number, to fill the earth. And what do the people say? No thanks, Lord, we don't want to do that. We want to do things our own way and in our own good time. And that's really the root of all of sin, isn't it? What I want, on the one hand... Versus what God wants on the other hand. And that could be a whole sermon in itself, couldn't it? The second reason for wanting to build this massive tower was so they could reach heaven. Now, from the context of the language here, it isn't that the people were actually attempting to build a tower so that they would uh, be like Jack's beanstalk and climb into the clouds, right? But a tower that reached unto heaven. And that's exactly what these ancient Mesopotamian ziggurat towers are for. They're for reaching into heaven. For making a connection with the heavens. You have to picture them, the inner walls of the top tier would be decorated with these blue glazed tiles with images of the sun and the moon and and five known planets, Mercury and and Venus and Mars and and Jupiter and Saturn that they knew at the time, all lining up on the planes of the zodiac. Just like the pyramids in ancient Egypt and then much later the Mayan temples of Central America, they they were all constructed on those lines. One author wrote on this, he said, This is not. An innocent, naive, primitive effort to reach out to the Creator, it was instead a brilliant but blasphemous effort to dismiss the need for God forever. An effort whose enterprise reeked of all the human pride and arrogance that had dominated mankind since before the flood. Also, they could, in their own words, make a name for themselves. But I love the irony of what happens in verse 5, because if you remember our text, it says, But the Lord came down. He came down to see the city and the tower that these men were building. And it's clear that God wasn't all that impressed with it. And it wasn't that he had to actually leave heaven to come down, but it's a figure of speech as to how feeble these men's efforts were, even their best efforts. You can almost picture God looking way down from heaven at this tower that's supposed to reach up there, right? And he's saying, the people that I've created and preserved are all united now united in opposition to me and they all have one language they're all on the same page and this is what they begin to do because with this kind of effort now nothing will hold them back from all the debauchery that they can imagine to do and nothing nothing will be impossible for them to do to bring dishonor to god and destruction to themselves and what kind of judgment does god send them i mean he didn't send an earthquake to collapse the tower right he didn't bring a huge hurricane to blow everything away. There's no fire. There's no brimstone. He just simply makes it so that people can't communicate with each other anymore. He changes their language. That's it. And as far as punishment goes, that's pretty simple, isn't it? But it's powerful. It's appropriate. And as a result of the chaos and confusion, it leaves these people's pride in complete ruin. And so they leave off. They disperse. They can't talk to each other anymore, and so they they leave taking their languages with them, and they fill the whole earth just like the Lord had commanded. Now, that's the end of the account from Genesis, but that isn't the end of the story, and that's what I want you to see today, because, you know, we've talked about this several times before, but when we track the redemption story through the whole Bible, one way to look at it is to see that the Old Testament tells us the reason why we need redemption, and the New Testament details how God accomplished it. Like in this instance, how the pride of humanity that brought the curse of Babel is redeemed by the day that we're celebrating today, by the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And that's where our second reading comes from, from Acts chapter 2. This is one of my all-time favorite readings in Scripture. It's a little bit long, but it's, it's worth the read. This is Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And the word says, on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were all sitting. And then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them the ability. At that time there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. And when they heard the loud noise, everyone came running and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee. and Yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. And they stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean, they asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed, saying, they're they're just drunk, that's all. Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles, and shouted to the crowd, listen, listen carefully, all of you fellow Jews, residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people aren't drunk, as some of you are assuming. 9 o'clock in the morning is way too early for that. Know what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. He said, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. And I will pour out my Spirit, even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark, and the moon will turn blood red before the great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. People of Israel, listen, God publicly endorsed Jesus of Nazareth by doing powerful miracles and wonders and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen. And his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God. But God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And as the Father has promised, he gave the Holy Spirit to him to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. So let everyone know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. And Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, Each of you, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promises to you and to your children and to those who are far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. And the word says, and those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. Glory. Amen. Did you see how our our text from Genesis and now in Acts kind of bookends each other? Because when we look at these passages in the light of Jesus Christ, we're able to see a whole new perspective on what the story of Babel is all about and what the power of Pentecost accomplished. Which is not so much the reversal of Babel, but it's redemption. I mean, think about it. Reversing Babel would mean that people return to speaking all one language again, or, or hearers return to hearing all one language. But that's not what happened on the day of Pentecost, is it? Instead, people of every tongue and tribe and language and nation are now united by the Holy Spirit instead of by whatever their pattern of speech might be. Our our culture and our language may be different, but the message is the same. The message of the wonders of God and the salvation in and through Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit calls upon all men and women to repent and to believe for the forgiveness of their sins. That's what both these stories are ultimately all about. Because in the fullness of time, God sent his son to die on the cross, to pay for my sins and yours, willingly. And then he rose from the dead to ascend to the highest place in heaven, and now he draws God and humanity back together again, with himself as the only bridge, the only means of access, the only legitimate connection between the two. And that was always his desire. Even at the dispersion after the failure and confusion of Babel, that was still God's plan But instead of us reaching Him, He wants a people that are connected and united in Jesus Christ, not in our own efforts. And God makes that possible to do because of the person and the work of His Son. Through the power of the Holy Spirit beginning at Pentecost, when God pours out His Holy Spirit on His people, and immediately they begin to preach in unknown languages. And by the same Spirit's power, the gospel has now conquered every language barrier. It's traveled over every continent to unite God's people into one whole and holy Christian church. Brothers and sisters, God himself has given us the kingdom. He's given us this community, the community of our Savior. And now, here we sit today in this assembly, and what's our hope? What's our hope for the future? This is it. That someday God is going to give us the fullness of the kingdom of heaven too. You know, I think it's really ironic at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis These sinful people try to build a tower up to heaven, but in the the end of the Bible, in Revelation, God sends heaven down to earth. That was his plan. And what a gracious kingdom it's described as. I want to share with you Revelation chapter 21. The Apostle John wrote, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down, from God, out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He'll live with them, and they'll be his people, and God himself will be with them. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, or sorrow, or crying, or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, making everything new. But cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And then one of the seven angels said to me, come with me and I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. You see how, how Revelation chapter 21 kind of pulls these all together as God's new city, this new Jerusalem is described as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And if we had time to read through the rest of the chapter, the dimensions of this this new Jerusalem are described as it's 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles high. It's a, a gigantic tower, the tower of God, given to those who live by faith in Jesus Christ, our Jesus Christ, who willingly humbled himself to become a servant to make no name for himself, to buy us access to that city, for you and for me. A city where righteousness dwells. A city where love and and unity and laughter will connect us, and a city that will go on into eternity for the praise of our God alone and for his glory now and forever. Amen? Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the gift of faith. We thank you, Father, for your great mercy in sending us your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, make us now watchful and keep us faithful in that spirit, Lord, as we await the coming of your Son, our Lord, that when he comes, Lord, he won't find us sleeping in sin, but active in service and joyful in worship. Father, we ask you to protect this family gathered before you by the pure preaching of your word and the right administration of your sacraments, of your Holy Supper, Lord, that we come now to receive in spirit and in truth and so, gracious God, remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine, and we ask you to, to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these your gifts, that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.